We long for meaning and purpose, and often find ourselves doubting if God could even use us. We put our upbringing, our past, our struggles, our season of life, and so much more against God's plans to do extraordinary things. Well, Chris Dew unpacks Genesis 38 today and shows us how God chooses unlikely people to be a part of extraordinary things. Let's take a listen. What's up, church family? How y'all doing? You good? Come on, man. Who's happy to be at church this morning? Is anybody excited to be at church this morning? Come on. I'm, I'm honored to be here, man. I love, I love the Vineyard family. I love you guys, and I love Wheeling, and I'm, I'm honored to be here. If you would, uh, let's pray together real quick. Heavenly Father, this is your space. It's your word. It's your spirit. It's your people, it's your church, God. It's your world. And our heart right now is to hear from you. It's the whole reason that all of us came today is to hear from you, God. And I pray that you would speak to us through your word, that you would change our hearts, God. And God, I pray that you'd break chains in this place, in our hearts and in our lives and all over the valley. Gosh, we love you. You're so good to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm going to open up with a story. Picture this in your mind, that there's a little girl, five years old or so, who her whole life, uh, that she's been abused in all kinds of different ways. Physically abused, sexually abused. And uh, as uh, she gets older, that she has lots of pain in her heart, a lot of trauma that she has uh, to handle and kind of deal with. And eventually, uh, she tries alcohol. She's like, man, th- this, is, this is honestly, this helps a little bit. I can calm down. And eventually, it's into harder and harder drugs. And eventually, uh, that she's a f- full-blown addict. But as... Uh, she gets older and older uh, that she has to find a way to make more money. He's like, man, I, honestly, I'm, I'm out of money and I have this habit. It's the only thing that treats what's wrong inside of me. And eventually, uh, she has to prostitute herself out for drugs. And for 20 plus years, that's her reality. Have all this pain, all this trauma on the inside of me. I've got to treat it with something. Finds comfort in drugs, except the only way to keep that going is through prostitution. But eventually, she stumbles into a church one day. She has all this pain, all the brokenness, and she comes to church and she hears a whole sermon on purpose and meaning, on how all of us have a purpose from God that we were created uh, to actually make a difference in the world. And the whole time that the pastor is teaching on that, preaching on that, this question arises in her heart of, I don't think that's true for me. Is there actually a purpose for my life? With all the things I've been through, all the pain I've experienced, all the things in my life, is that actually true for me? And this is a common question. As I um, 
have the privilege of uh, pastoring addicts. And, uh, you know, a lot of people that have a story like that, oftentimes as they try to follow Jesus, this question arrives in their hearts of, is there a purpose for me? With all my pain, all my stuff I've done, all my present struggles, all my future struggles, is that actually true for me? But if we're honest, it isn't just addicts that have that question arise in their hearts. It's all of us. All of us have the question of, man, with, with all the things I've done, how awkward I am maybe, or I'm too old, too young, too short, uh, I don't think I'm smart enough. All these things that we have in our lives, that this question arises in our hearts, in our heart of hearts, of can I really be used by God? So the title of this message is this, Unlikely People. Unlikely People. If you have a Bible, uh, flip open to chapter 38 in uh, the book of Genesis. I just want to tell you, that this is one of those passages in Genesis that are, it's kind of got some weird stuff in there. Almost every chapter has some weird stuff in there, but this one in particular, like, if you have your kids in the service today, just want to tell you, you might, you know, have to hold some ears at, at a few points in this message, uh, but you'll know what I'm talking about as we jump in. So flip there if you have a Bible. If not, it's going to be on the screens. But, I'm slightly controlling. I don't know if you've, you've heard me talk about this before, but I'm a one on the Enneagram. Everything is black and white to me, right? Like I love to always have everything in its place and its order. And I'm a little controlling, right? So if uh, the, we are traveling anywhere together, I'm trying to drive. Doesn't matter if it's your car or your mama's car or your friend's car. I'm like, can can I drive? I mean, I trust you're driving, kind of, but but I, I just feel better if I'm in control. That's flesh. That's not of the spirit. I need some help working through that for sure, right? But the hard thing about having kids is that oftentimes all those fleshly patterns that you have are transmitted to your children. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? And so my sweet little two-year-old Evelyn has a lot of that inside of her. So anytime that I'm on the phone with anybody or FaceTime especially, and she hears me on the phone, she runs from wherever she is and she's like, hand me the phone back. I'm trying to drive. Give me, give me, give me this thing right now. I'll hold it and I'll allow you to see it for sure, Dad, but I, I got to hold this thing, right? It's, it's, it's always an interruption. And I'm on this very important call, and here comes my little girl trying to say, give me, give me this phone. It's an interruption. And as we look at this chapter in the scope of all of Genesis, this chapter seems like it's an interruption. All of the previous few chapters, and then after this, the whole rest of the book of Genesis is about uh, you know Joseph. It's about how he was had all these dreams, and then eventually he told his brothers and his family, and they're like, "No, we can't have that." So he's sold into slavery. He's put in a pit, and then he's in prison, and then he's in Potiphar's house, and eventually, finally, he's in the palace. But here, chapter thirty-eight. 
it isn't about Joseph at all. It's about his older brother, Judah. But oftentimes in stories, uh, that if there's an unplanned interruption, it oftentimes has profound weight in the story and meaning. And I would argue that as I read through this, uh, the first few times I'm like, I literally, I need some commentary help on this because your boy don't know why that's in the Bible. Yet, I believe that there are some key truths in this chapter that actually unlock how the entire scope of Genesis fits into a redemptive history. Oftentimes, unplanned interruptions are actually planned by the Lord, especially in Scripture. All right, are y'all ready to jump in? Chapters 1 through 10, ultimately what we get is this picture of a guy named Judah. He's the older brother of Joseph, uh, that he played a part in selling Joseph into slavery. And in the opening few verses, what we see is that Judah finds a wife who's a Canaanite woman. And all through the Old Testament, uh, this isn't ever applauded. It's it's frowned upon sometimes when a person who's in the people of God is like, I'm going to find a wife outside of the people of God. Because oftentimes what happens is that the people of God's hearts are led astray. So that's who he marries, and they have three sons. And you, you think, okay, very cool, he's got three sons. But let's look at verse t- 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 6 and 7 now to see what happens. It says this, So, and uh, Judah took a wife for Ur, his t- firstborn. Now that's a name. Ur, man. If you're about to have a child, Ur is a good name. Ur, his t- firstborn, it's like, I think if you're in the hospital room and you're like, we haven't come up with a name, let's just go with Ur, you know, like just grunt and whatever comes out that that's the kid's name, right? So Ur, the firstborn and uh, the wife was Tamar, but let's look at verse seven here and Ur, Judah's firstborn was wicked in the sight of the Lord and the Lord put him to death. Yikes. Let's keep reading in verse 8 through 10. It says this, And then Judah said to Onan, I want you to go into your brother's wife and perform the uh, the duty of a a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Culturally, in that day and age, what happened if uh, the older brother had a wife and he passed away prior to having kids, that uh, uh, the brother would have to um, hang out with his brother's wife and have kids for his brother who passed away. Right? But he's saying, I, I don't want to do that. I don't think that's a good idea. I want to have uh, my own wife and my own kids. And so here's what he does. If you have kids, you can hide their ears at this point. All right, in verse 9, it says, Yet Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. 
And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. This is one of those passages in the scripture where the holiness of God is on full display. There's passages that emphasize the love of God, and there's passages that emphasize like his gracious nature and he's merciful and all these things. But this is one of those passages that just screams he's a holy God. And oftentimes the argument is that, well, that's Old Testament God. Pastor, that's, that's Old Testament. Like he doesn't do that anymore. Here in our day and age, uh, it's like a f- flowy haired God with blonde hair and blue eyes holding a lamb. And it's just like, oh my gosh, like this is our God now. He's very tame and just loving. He's not holy like that Old Testament God. Yet here's the thing I want you to get is that the same Lord in the Old Testament is the same Lord in the New Testament and is the same Lord here today. He's just as holy in 2023 as he was here in this day and age. He is a loving God, but he's also a holy God. If you have time later, uh, you know, flip over to Acts chapter 5. This is after the resurrection of Christ, after the Holy Spirit falls, and there's some people that are in the church who have an amount of money that they're going to give to the church, and they lie about exactly how much it is. And the scripture says the Lord put them to death. Cheers. (laughs) But here's the thing about our culture, is that we have a culture that cares a whole lot about horizontal justice. Here's this cry in our hearts of just justice has to be served. Uh, there's one uh, show that I was watching the other day about criminals that are doing really stupid things and get caught. Uh, it's like they head into the bank, they rob the bank, and on the way out, trip and fall, smack their nose and get arrested. And t- t- something happens on the inside of us when that happens of just, oh, justice is served. Get them, Lord. You know what I mean? Like there's something in us that just rises up of justice just feels right in our hearts. Or a heavier example, uh, I recently watched the movie Emmett Till. Have you guys ever watched that? You guys seen Emmett Till? Wonderful movie. Uh, it's about a black man who is uh, you know, lynched, falsely accused and lynched. And it's uh, about uh, the court case and all these things leading up to um, or after his passing away. And the whole time I'm watching this movie, there's this cry in my heart of justice has to be served. This can't just go on like this. There has to be justice. We have a culture that's all about horizontal justice, yet is adamantly opposed uh, to vertical justice. We're all about people getting what they deserve horizontally, but vertically, when we talk about the holiness of God, it's like, man, I don't like that his whole view of justice is way different than my view of justice. He is a just Lord. He is holy, and sin has consequences. I love this quote by N.T. Wright. I think we're going to have it on the screen. It says this, the picture of Jesus as the coming judge is the Central feature 
of another absolutely vital and non-negotiable Christian belief. Here's the belief. That there will indeed be a judgment in which the Creator God will set this world right once and for all. That's good news. And eventually Jesus is going to come back and everything that's unjust will be made clear. And there will be a penalty for it. This heart we have inside of us that we need justice is there because we are made in the image of God. And he's a just God and therefore his desire for justice is placed inside of every single person. All right, let's keep reading in verses 11 through 19. So what happens is you got a guy, Judah, in this passage that kind of seems like an interruption in the story of Joseph and the scope of Genesis. And it highlights that he finds a wife who's a Canaanite woman and they have three kids. First one's evil, he gets struck down, put to death. But he has a wife named Tamar so uh, that his uh, the brother has to try to marry Tamar, except he's like, no, I ain't giving her kids because it isn't going to be my kids, and he's also struck down as well. So at this point uh, that we've got Mr. Judah who's like, man, I'm not giving her my third son. I don't know what she's doing to him, but it's her fault. The whole reason that they keep passing away is probably because she is wicked, so I'm not going to give her my third son. And he hides. Here's his name. Are y'all ready for this? Sheila is his name. That's a name for a boy. If you have a boy, guys, Sheila and Ur. Come on, somebody. Those are some good names. But what happens next is pretty sketchy. So Tamar hears about this. That uh, she understands that the third son is being withheld from her. And so her plan is uh, that she's going to try to meet her father-in-law as he's walking around one day. And what she does is she um, hides her face and acts like a cult prostitute. And let's read and see what happens in verse 18. He comes up to her and says, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. And so he handed them to her and he went into her and she conceived by him, her father-in-law. It's a sketchy passage, isn't it? but I don't want you to miss this. That ultimately, as he's walking along this road and he sees this cult prostitute that he doesn't understand who she is and he goes up and he says, hey, how much? And her response is your signet and your cord and your staff. Now, here in 2023, that doesn't really mean a lot to us. It's like, okay, a signet, a staff, is that like a walking stick? What exactly is this? But these were um, articles of his identity. I don't want you to miss this. If he was willing to give over his identity 
for a few minutes of pleasure. He was willing to hand over a piece of himself just in order for instant satisfaction. And it's prevalent in our culture that sex is just a harmless recreational activity. It's not a big deal, man. It's just, it's, it's just kind of fun. Like there isn't anything that really harms you in it. But scripture's pretty clear that there's actually a weight to it. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, yet the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Paul is explaining here that it actually isn't a harmless recreational activity. It's more than that. But I love this quote by Carl Truman. He says this, while sex is presented here today as little more than a recreational activity, sexuality is presented as that which lies at the very heart of what it means to be an authentic person. And that is a profound claim that is arguably unprecedented in history. Truman is explaining there that culturally that we've got these two ends of the spectrum trying to hold them together. That on one side we say it's a harmless recreational activity, just go and have fun, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. Except on the other end of the spectrum we say, no, 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 it's at the core of who you are. And here's the thing about sex. It is way more than a harmless recreational activity, yet it's also less than the core of who we are. I want to point this out too, that every person who's ever existed in the history of the world has had impure sexual desires. That's the reality that we live in, right? In a fallen world, we have impure sexual desires. Yet, the reason why God tells you to not act on every single impulse that you have isn't because he's a killjoy. It's actually because he loves you. Uh, oftentimes, I'll take Evelyn uh, you know, to the store or, or uh, you know, out in a parking lot somewhere, and I ask her to hold my hand. And I'm like, hey, baby, you, you got to hold my hand. And oftentimes... Homegirl just looks up at me like, this is so repressive, Dad. Obviously, doesn't use those words, but she looks at me like, uh-uh, I want to run free, Dad. You are restricting my freedom. There's all these cars going everywhere and stuff, and she's like, let me run, Dad. How I love her well in that moment isn't, yeah, baby, you can have all the freedom you want. I want you to go out and play and get ran over. No. How I love her well is, hey, trust me. Trust me. Hold my hand. I love you so much. True freedom isn't the absence of restriction. True freedom is glad submission to a good father's good, perfect, and pleasing will. Our world will tell you that if you do not act on all your desires on the inside, that that's actually enslavement, but it's the opposite. If you act on everything you have in your heart, it actually enslaves you to your desires. All right, let's see what happens next. 
What happens next in 20 through 26 is that ultimately that Judah hears that Tamar is pregnant. And his response is, have her killed. I can't believe that she was immoral. I can't believe that she cheated on our family. I can't believe that this is going on. Let's have her killed. But then she hands over his staff and his cord and his signet, and he has the revelation, I'm the father. This, I'm actually the one that caused this. I want to point this out too. Oftentimes that the loudest people about other people's uh, struggles and sin and, and immorality are the people that have things to hide themselves. I'm going to say it again. Oftentimes the people that are loudest about other people's stuff, did you hear about blah, blah, blah? Did you hear about blah, blah, blah? I can't believe she does this, blah, 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 are oftentimes the people that have things they are hiding in their own life. And Judah is exactly the same. It's like in John chapter 8, right? The woman caught in adultery. That all the hyper-spiritual people hand this lady over to Jesus who was caught in the act of adultery and say, the scripture says that she should be killed, put to death. What do you say, Jesus? And what's his response? If you have never sinned, throw the first stone. And what happens? Everyone starts to walk away because they're like, yeah, he's, he's right. I've got some stuff in my own heart and life as well. Oftentimes in this story, Tamar is framed up as the prostitute, right? And kind of looked down on of, I can't believe that lady would do that. And absolutely, her actions are not pure in this story. Yet I heard her framed up the other, the other day, and I think this is helpful, as an abuse victim and incest survivor. Because this is what's happening in this story. And also, I want to say this, that this is oftentimes the reason why people are in prostitution in general. It isn't like as a small child you grow up thinking, man, I'd love to be a prostitute when I grow up. Oftentimes there's extreme trauma that has happened in that person's life, extreme abuse that's happened in that person's life that caused them to grow up and have to do this or choose that way. Let's look here at verse 26 at his response once he finds out he's the father. It says this, that she is more righteous than I. His response after screaming and saying, man, I can't believe what she's done. I can't believe that she cheated on my son that she was about to marry. I can't believe all these things. And she's pregnant. And then he's humbled in the fact that, no, I'm, I'm actually the cause of this. I actually played a part in this. And his response is, she is more righteous than I. And after this moment, every other time we hear about Judah in the scriptures, it's in a positive light. And it's evident that from this point on that he has some type of heart change. And this is a turning point in his life. It's oftentimes how it happens in our lives as well. That we have things that happen that we're confronted with, our brokenness. And through that, uh, that we are transformed. 
Now let's flip to 27 through 30, and this is the last few verses in our chapter. I'm going to read them all. And here in these few verses is the key to the entire passage, and this is the whole thing that we've been leading up to. Here's what it says. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. Oh, Lord. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. Yet as he drew in his hand again, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. And therefore, his name was called Perez. And afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zura. Now, what about you? But the first hundred times I read this passage, I'm like, that's weird. I have no idea what that's about. It's like the brothers are like fighting in the womb, except it's over and over in Genesis, right? You see this with Esau and Jacob. There's this thing going on. I'm like, man, why is that there? And then as I was reading and studying this, almost on every page that there is a something that happens like this in Genesis, almost in every chapter. And ultimately what that is, is one of the major themes in Genesis and all throughout the Bible. See, because here's the thing, culturally back then, uh, there was great emphasis placed on the firstborn. Uh, They had uh, cultural importance, extra inheritance, all these types of blessings that came to the firstborn. Yet over and over again in Genesis and throughout the Bible that we see the Lord subverting who culturally that they would say, that's the one that's going to be blessed. That's the one that's going to be chosen. That's the one that's going to be used. Over and over again throughout Genesis, that's what happens. Abel is chosen over Cain. Jacob is chosen over Esau. Perez is chosen over Zerah. King David is chosen over his brothers and Saul. And even in Jesus' ministry, we see he has an emphasis on the younger brother rather than the older brother types. And here's the point I believe that God's trying to make through this chapter and through all those occurrences in the Bible. Here's what it is. That he chooses unlikely people to be part of of extraordinary things. Ultimately, what this chapter is trying to get our minds around is that how God works is he doesn't choose the one that culture says, this is the smartest, this is the tallest, this is the greatest, except rather he chooses the unlikely person, the broken person, the abused person. Let's flip over to the chapter 49 real quick as we close. It was on the screen as I was about to walk out. I love that they chose that passage. It says this in chapter 49, read verse 8. It says this, Judah, your brothers will praise you and your hand will be on the, uh, the neck of your enemies and all your father's sons will bow down before you. And let's look at verse 10. It says this, the scepter will not 
depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of all the people. I don't want you to miss this. At the end of Jacob's life, as he's blessing all of his kids, that you would think that the emphasis is going to be on Joseph. He's the chosen one. The whole end of the book of Genesis is about Joseph. Like He's going to be the chosen one, except rather as he hands out these blessings, the emphasis of kingship, of who's going to rule, who's the chosen one, is put on Judah. The sketchy dude, has some sketchy things happen in his life, made some massive mistakes. He's chosen. And out of his um, kids and his line comes King David and eventually Jesus Christ himself. Jesus' whole life was unlikely. How he came into the world as king, right? You'd think it would be a parade and there'd just be all these uh, huge parties around the life of Jesus about him being born. No, no, no. They tried to have him in an inn and they said, no, we don't have room for him. He was in a feeding trough instead. As he calls his apprentices who are going to follow him, right? He doesn't have these smart guys that are very eloquent and trained in the scripture. No, he chooses hard-working fishermen. As he's explaining, I'm about to usher in the kingdom of God, he does it in an unlikely way. He's literally crucified with a crown of thorns on his head. After he hops up from the grave and he tells the very first people to go tell what happened, who does he choose? He chooses women. And culturally in that day, they were like, man... There isn't any honor placed on women in this culture, but he chooses them because it was unlikely. Jesus' whole life and ministry was unlikely. God chooses unlikely people to be part of extraordinary things. I love how in Hebrews and in other places that Christ is referred to as the firstborn. It's like, okay, wait a second. I thought that it was the opposite of that, that the blessed one isn't the firstborn, it's the unlikely one. Why is Jesus referred to as the firstborn in the New Testament? And here's why. Because he was crucified on a cross and you and I, if we're in Christ, are the blessed ones. He chooses unlikely people to be part of extraordinary things. He chooses us to share in his inheritance. This includes abused people. It includes broken people. He chooses Abel over Cain and Jacob over Esau and Joseph over his brothers, Perez over Zerah, King David over Saul and his older brothers, the foolish over the wise, people who can't speak very well over the eloquent. And in this story, we see God redeeming incest and prostitution in order to bring about his kingdom on earth. Man, what a God we serve. He chooses unlikely people to be part of extraordinary things. So to come back 
uh, to our original question at the beginning of the message. That hurting lady that came into the church service with so much pain and brokenness in her heart, who's asking the question, can I be used by God? The answer is a resounding yes. To the Hope Center guys that are here, that question has come into your heart of, man, am I able to be used by God? Is there a purpose for me? With all that I've done, all the things I've seen, the answer is a resounding yes. He's got massive plans for you guys. And then for all of us in the room, whether that you have in your mind, I'm too old or too young, I'm not smart enough or I'm too educated, I've got too much money or I'm too poor. Whatever that thing is, the answer to your question that rings in our heart of hearts is yes, he can use you. He uses unlikely people to be part of extraordinary things. Let's head into invitation time, if you would. Let's close our eyes and bow our heads. If you're here and that you just feel unlikely, too short, too ugly, too fat, too slow of speech, not smart enough, whatever. I just want to encourage you. He chooses people just like you. What's he calling you to do? Listen for the Holy Spirit. How is he calling you to enter into his kingdom work? I want to encourage you to say yes. You are a mighty man or woman of valor. He's got plans for you. If you're here and you're pretty broken, that as you look at your life, like you're like, man, honestly, my life looks kind of like this story. It's sketchy. It's got some weird things to it that I don't like to talk about. I just want to encourage you that God can still use you. He oftentimes chooses people just like you to be part of his beautiful plan. This is the beauty of the gospel. I would encourage you, though, to not hide that stuff in your heart. I know I had some sketchy things in my life, and how I was able to work through them was to talk about them and to find wholeness and healing through confession. Come to Jesus. We have uh, the life groups that are starting. I highly encourage you to sign up. Those are places where you can really open up about things. All right, if you're here and you've experienced abuse, a lot of this passage was talking about that. Physical abuse, sexual abuse, or any other type. I want to encourage you to let somebody know. And we have trained people here who would love to pray with you and help you to get out of the situation that you're currently in or to help you find healing over the long run. About a quarter of the population has experienced some sort of abuse. You're not alone. We would love to help you to find wholeness and healing through that. As we prayed, uh, this last kind of group of people were highlighted. And it's the people who have abused others. 
you're here and you are currently abusing someone or have abused someone in the past, especially sexually, I think this passage highlighting the holiness of God and how a person who absolutely abused someone like Judah did was able to have a heart change as he humbled himself when he was confronted with his sin. And I just want to encourage you that maybe this is your time where the Holy Spirit is confronting you lovingly but firmly to repent. As we prayed, I felt that so strongly in my spirit that there's a couple people here who have had that experience. You've abused somebody. And I just want to tell you, this is the kindness of God to point it out to you in this way. Get honest, repent, stop it. And just like Judah, as his story was transformed, your story can be transformed as well. There is grace and mercy on offer for you here this morning. But the question arises, how does a holy God that strikes down evil people also choose the broken and the abused and unlikely people to be part of his plan? What's the gospel? That all of God's wrath, all of his holy wrath and justice was poured out on Jesus, his son on the cross. And therefore, if we're in Christ, there is now no condemnation for us. And all of his wrath was poured out on Jesus in order that we can be adopted into his family and be a part of his kingdom purpose. If that's you today, if you're here and you're like, man, listen, I need to get saved. I've done some things I'm not proud of and I don't know Jesus yet. What scripture says is that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. Whoever means you. It isn't your works that gets you in place in your faith and trust in Jesus. So if that's you, pray with me quietly in your heart of hearts. You don't have to even say it out loud. He hears you. He's closer than your closest thoughts. Pray something like this to him. Heavenly Father, I need you to save me. I know that I've screwed up in my life. And I know I can't save myself. I know I've sinned, God. And God, I'm coming to you right now to find forgiveness, to find healing, to find purpose. I repent of my sin. I turn from it. And I place my faith and my trust in you, Jesus. Have my life. With all heads down and all eyes closed, if you just prayed that to him, would you put your hand over your head for me in order that I can see? I'm the only one looking around. 
anybody else. You're not the only one. Anybody else? Beautiful, beautiful. You can put your hands down. If you prayed that, tell somebody before we leave. Uh, We have prayer areas on the left and the right back here. And I would just encourage you that as you walk out, tell somebody. Let them know, hey, listen, I prayed to receive Christ. Or if you have any of those other things we talked about, if you have experienced abusing others or that you've been abused or have anything you want to talk about or to get prayer for, come talk to us in the prayer areas. We'd love to pray with you. God chooses unlikely people to be part of extraordinary things. Would you hop up for me on your feet? I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to go back into worship. Let's pray together. Jesus, God, we worship you now. You're holy, and you're a just judge, but you're also a loving father. Thank you for your mercy for your grace, for how you love us. Thank you for conviction and how you speak to us through your Holy Spirit and through your word. And God, I pray right now that you would lead people into freedom. Help us respond to you however you lead us to. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for joining us on the Vineyard Church Podcast today. It's our greatest desire for people to find and follow God, and we hope this podcast is one way that helps you do just that. But don't stop here. We would love to see you face-to-face. God's people grow most in community, so don't forget you can join us live at the Capitol Theater in downtown Wheeling every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. If you'd like to connect with us in the meantime, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. You can catch up on previous messages and series, request prayer, and even download additional content. Thanks again for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.